Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss. Lou, how are you today? Uh, chillier than a week ago. Uh, New Jersey's <laughs> having its first uh, bout of some 32-degree uh, weather, which is, as you know, is my favorite time of year. But uh, great. And you? Yeah, doing super, although in the Atlanta area we hit 27 degrees, so we might be colder than the northeast for a moment last night. Well, you ought to move back north where it's warm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. What's going on? Bring our audience up to speed on last week's show. We had a pretty interesting show last week with Stephen Gold. We had uh, Norbert Orr uh, was on. And uh, he's uh, an economist uh, for Strategas. 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 I I don't know why I don't get that straight. Um, And he discussed uh, economics uh, globally. And we did touch on uh, a good part of uh, Europe, South America, uh, Asia, China primarily. And uh, South America, there's some pretty interesting things going on. Um, and I suggest that uh, anybody dealing in the uh, international market to uh, go to the last week's show and uh, listen to Norbert lay out his uh, economic intellectual best. And uh, I just want to mention before we get started with today is that uh, the second segment of our show today uh, we are going to be doing a FabTech uh, wrap-up of the FabTech show from two weeks ago, uh, discussing uh, different people that we've uh, interviewed, different uh, situations that are going on in the manufacturing sector uh, as uh, seen today. So that's uh, that'll be a, a very interesting uh, segment that we're going to have. And so I'll throw it back at you, Tim, and uh, let you do the intros. I also want to remind everyone that last week we had Stephen Goldon, who's president and CEO of MAPI, uh, Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation, discussing the five key megatrends in manufacturing. So it's a great show. You can find it on our website at mfgtalkradio.com under all previous shows. Uh, Today, however, we are speaking with Frank Artiaga. Frank is the head of product manufacturing for a, a product marketing for a company known as Bistronic. And I'm going to have uh, Frank uh, kind of explain some things that are happening in that uh, fabrication industry, some some really exciting developments in this time of rapid technological change. Uh, Frank has over 25 years of experience in sheet metal fabrication, working directly with laser jet, water jet, press brake, and automation systems. So he knows quite a bit about the uh, machines and the technology and the developments. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, I'd like to thank everybody for attending today. And uh, uh, Frank, the, the fiber laser technology, uh, how is it becoming a real game changer in the fabrication industry? Well, I mean, the emergence of fiber technology is uh, it's basically uh, replacing what used to be uh, prevalent, which was a CO2 laser technology out in the fabrication industry. 
And if I could correlate it to something on the consumer side would be kind of like when flat screen LED technology emerged to replace standard two-phase TVs and plasma TVs. It's, uh, it's that revolutionary, um, and it's a real game changer within the industry. Um, one, of the, one of the things that uh, is really appealing is with fiber technology is the lower cost of operation. I mean, compared to CO2, you're looking at about a 50% reduction in uh, operating costs, and also the ability to cut materials that CO2 we're not able to process, such as brass and copper, and the overall ability to cut materials up to four times faster than CO2 lasers without sacrificing quality. So if you combine the two uh, aspects there of lower costs and four times faster, that becomes very appealing. When did we move, Frank, away from hacksaws and coping saws? I, I've lost track of the, the migration in the industry. How did we used to do it before lasers? Well, uh, before lasers, it was uh, done through uh, punching. Primarily, that was the technology to, uh, to process sheet metal parts. So everything was uh, a shape that was uh, a punch size. If you wanted to do an outer contour, you would have to nibble the outer contour, and then you'd have to uh, basically grind the edges to make them smooth. So. That was one technology. We also had plasma technology beforehand. Um, so punching, then plasma emerge, and then laser emerge from there. Ah, okay. Now, when you talk about uh, the the cost benefit of going to uh, fiber laser technology, it's something that I think Pistrana came up with. Correct me if I'm wrong. Something you call fibernomics. Is that right? Yeah, that's uh, uh, a product of of using fiber technology. Um, as I said, you have a, a real benefit in that uh, you're reducing the cost of operations by 50% and then increasing your feed rates by more than uh, four times. So that is extremely attractive. Um, so the you have the end result is basically uh, increased profit margins while reducing the cost per part. And this is basically what we're calling, what Bystrana calls fibernomics, or short for fiber economics. Um, so basically, we put a little formula behind it. It's uh, lower operating cost plus faster feed feeds uh, equals greater profit and earnings potential. And the but the fibernomics isn't just the economics of owning a fiber laser, but the overall economic advantage that is created when all of the pull and push demands uh, that's created within the fabrication process uh, chain are also satisfied to meet the production capabilities of the fiber. Because once you put a fiber laser in the process chain, you have this dynamic where on the front end of the, of the process for example, programming and engineering, there's a pull demand. And if that is not addressed, then the laser is starved for programs to cut. And then downstream from the laser, normally you have bending, welding, painting, and other processes like that. And if you don't address those downstream processes, then because the fiber is producing so many more parts per hour, um, parts begin to pile up unless you address those downstream processes. 
And how would you address those uh, downstream processes? Because I would think that's where the bottlenecks would be created. Right. So, right. So, well, the bottlenecks is, is actually on the front end and on the downstream process because now you're you're cutting four times faster, which means you're processing through two to three times more programs than normal. So, a programmer that used to make, let's say, a hundred programs in a week is now making two to three hundred programs in a week. So unless you have the means or the automation to um, keep up with that part of it, then you're going to starve uh, the, the fiber itself, fiber laser, for cutting programs. And what then downstream... The... Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted your flow. I'm sorry. Uh, downstream, as you mentioned, um, is also obviously a bottleneck as well. So after you've actually cut the parts. You need to have make sure that you have the parts unloaded from the laser in a timely fashion um, and then presented to the next uh, process in the chain, which could be bending, for example. And in bending, uh, you have to use, utilize basically high-speed bending technology um, to make sure that you're keeping up with, uh, with the with the speed of the fiber laser, because the fiber laser is producing, you know, two to three times more parts in the same amount of time, and therefore, now the press brakes, either you add more press brakes or you invest in press brakes that are much faster than conventional press brakes. So the investment cost of a laser uh, system, uh, and, and I have no idea what that is, uh, it actually is, would be considerably higher to... Uh, avoid these uh, push-pull production issues. Uh, Am I correct? In other words, if you you have a piece of equipment that, say, costs $50,000, well, now i got to get other machines that can be as quick to keep up with the flow. i got to now buy new technology on the front end and and the back end. Well, that's that's the whole thing with technology and, and, and making sure that you're competitive and you remain competitive um, fabrication is extremely competitive uh, if you want to jump out and, and grab the competitive edge then you know moving towards fiber technology obviously is going to give you tremendous advantage by having a lower cost per part by having a lower cost per part you can either increase your margins or lower your bids um, you know or a combination of both kind of you know, grasp that happy medium. Um, but that's a tremendous advantage that people had. The yeah. early adopters, the early adopters of fiber laser technology, they they really um, had a huge advantage because nobody else was using fiber laser technology. Therefore, their profit margins were increased dramatically, and they were able to lower their prices on their parts. So they got more bids, more business, so it really... Uh, Escalated. Uh, quite well what, what is the uh, economic uh, uh, outlay to get involved in a uh, laser system? Well, laser fiber laser cutting systems um, can be anywhere from three hundred thousand range to you know over a million. It depends on really the the power levels, the level of automation that you have on the systems. So. Mm-hmm. Anything within that range, you can you can get uh, uh, fiber laser and automation 
together with. So, Frank, let's talk for a moment about uh, what's being called Industry 4.0 and all of the related technologies and the big data and uh, all of the the, uh, Internet of Things or the Industrial Internet of Things and intercommunication between machines and humans. What's happening uh, out there in the fabrication industry with Industry 4.0, particularly as it relates to decision-making? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the big... um benefits with Industry 4.0 is the decentralization of, of uh, decision-making. It's really been put into an automated kind of function in certain aspects uh, where it needs to be. Uh, for example, uh, when we talk about the data and the migration of data from one process to another, um, it all starts at the front end, right? We're talking about uh, software systems that uh, or, for example, involved with processing an order, uh, an ERP system can take an order and break it down into its bill of materials and process flows and also release uh, production to, for example, a nesting software automatically. So the nesting software could actually collect the data. This is kind of a job management software that collects all of the jobs that are being released it organizes all the jobs by material type, thickness, and due dates. And then it goes ahead and optimizes those jobs onto the sheets. So it's nesting the parts onto the sheet. And then it does this all automatically. No one has to be there to do all this, all these functions. And then it can automatically release those programs to the machines um, based on reaching an, uh, uh, an effective yield criteria, for example. So at that point, again, automatic decisions are being made at the machine level as it receives a program. Then it takes the program and starts to process it. It calls for the material from an automated uh, material handling system. Um, It will grab the exact type of material in a tower, for example, uh, and then with a loading system, automatically load the material onto the onto the shuttle table, and then you have basically two tables: one table that's cutting and another table that's on the outside for uh, unloading of the cut sheets and also loading of the next subsequent sheet. So, all of this is happening automatically. And you know, 4.0 industry 4.0 is really um, basically talking about the interconnectivity of all the devices. Um, and the data uh, that's communicating from one system to another in real time. Uh, It allows automated systems to make decisions on their own uh, that were once centralized with human activities, and uh, also the data that's there that's being collected by all of these machines can be utilized for uh, human interaction or human information on, for example, uh, you know, how the process is, is going, if there's any bottlenecks in the process, if there can be made any adjustments or corrections within the process, and that's all being done in real time. And that's the main thing about uh, having all this data is that you can make decisions in real time, both automatically and uh, via human interaction. Let me, let me ask you a question. Uh, based on the technology uh, that we're talking about at one time we used to have uh, a lot of people involved 
and I know some of the cost cutting that you're talking about is would also be a, a, a cutback in labor costs. Uh, I, I would assume. Uh, in, in an operation that you're talking about from front to back, uh, how much of a reduction in labor costs is there? Well, I think it's... And I, and I know it depends on the specific products and so on, but just as a, as a good guesstimate. Right. So I think that what it enables is to operate more efficiently. Um, so you could effectively, for example, the, the system where I was talking about where orders are being uh, uh, turned into programs automatically... That's the type of system that you would really utilize in a high-demand environment where you need a lot of programs. It's not just one laser. You're working with maybe two or three lasers, and they're all fiber lasers, and it really requires automation in order to keep up with that, with that process. There is someone still there. It's not like it's an empty seat type of, of, uh, of uh, condition, but... It allows you to have maybe one or two people where in the past you maybe have needed five or ten. So it's it's something that uh, is necessary in order to, for example, uh, if, you're, if your front office is only there in the first shift, but you're running a second and third shift, well, how are you going to feed the second and third shift unless you're really efficient uh, in your process? So. Right. Otherwise, you're going to have to have the same amount of programs in your first shift, in your second shift, in your third shift. So it mm -hmm. really helps with the efficiency of, of, uh, of the process. Frank, I know one of the concerns that manufacturing is faced with right now is the graying of America, people retiring out of manufacturing, the brain drain of uh, those folks who had the information uh, either in their secret black book or tucked into their head about uh, how they got a particular job done. So how is the impact of new data technology reducing the learning curve for new machine operators and capturing the uh, knowledge that is uh, slip sliding away? Well, actually, technology has uh, had a huge impact on the learning curve, for example, of, of learning the machines. Um, a lot of things that uh, were, as you, as you mentioned, stored in a little black book are now uh, stored on the machine itself. So they, the intelligence um, has been put into the machines so that an operator can be taught how to operate without really having the experience uh, of, for example, specific materials and how the materials react uh, when you're cutting them, when you're bending them. So a lot of that has been put into the machine intelligence itself. Um, and uh, as new operators are trained, uh, you know, the inherent machine characteristics and material parameters remain with the machine and, and really reduces the overall learning curve for the operators. Um, as, a, as a manufacturer, we have, for example, moved to uh, complete touchscreen controls. If you remember some of the uh, older legacy-type controls, you would look at them. They had a screen and about, you know, 100 buttons on them. Um, that has all uh, gone away, and we've moved to a complete touchscreen. Our screen is a 22-inch, looks like a 22-inch tablet. Um, and so basically what, what our philosophy is, if uh, you are already capable of, of operating a smartphone or a tablet, 
then it makes it that much easier for us to teach you how to operate our machine. Because all of the functionalities that you have in there and going to different apps and different screens and, you know, pinching the screen to, to, to make it zoom in or zoom out or rotating an object in, in, in free space, uh, you know, using your fingers on, on the touchpad is, is all, you know, a part of, of that shorter learning curve. And, uh, you know, so if we take the ability to uh, migrate to touch screens, which are consumer, uh, you know, consumer item, any, anybody, most people today have, have worked with some form of a touch screen, whether it's a phone or, or a tablet, and then you build in the intelligence uh, and the, the material uh, parameters, the empirical uh, uh, data that's, uh, that used to be kept in somebody's black book and you have that all within the controller, then it makes it that much easier to train operators on the effective use of the, of the equipment. Frank, I know one of the concerns of anyone who is working in uh, fabricated sheet metal is in the maximum utilization of the sheet with the least amount of waste. Is that now largely handled in software instead of somebody sitting at a design table trying to fit the various parts onto a, a schematic for the sheet? Is that now handled mostly in software? Yes. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the with the amount of volume of, of programs that programmers are faced with today, you know, with, with fiber lasers, for example, um, they have to be very fast and very efficient. And the efficiency is really important, obviously, because most of your cost is within the material itself. So if you look at it as a breakdown of any uh, job, it's primarily most of the cost, the majority of the cost is actually in the material itself and not in the processing of that, of that part. So... Um, raw material costs are very important, and getting effective yields from your um, from your sheet is very important as well. Uh, there are other technologies that have come into play recently, uh, besides automatic nesting capabilities. So these are algorithms that automatically rotate parts and tries to make the optimum fit of all the parts. There's also some new technology which makes use of uh, distributed computer processing. So an algorithm that you would use on a laptop, as you have, maybe you have a couple of processes in your laptop, um, they can only do so much number crunching and so much rotations and so much optimization. Now a cloud, what a cloud uh, optimization service does is it, it takes those parts and using hundreds of processors, like on a server farm, it can actually do the number crunching and get those parts even closer and better with better yields uh, and a much faster result. So uh, that's also the new types of technology that are that are, are being introduced today. Is most of that software proprietary, Frank, to the manufacturer? For instance, you, you're with Bystronic. You folks uh, manufacture a, a fiber laser machine, I think. Is most of that technology proprietary to your machine? No, I mean, the, the fiber laser source uh, is something that is um, available out there in the market. Um, we build the machines and the software and the automation and everything behind that, and then we utilize a fiber laser source within our machines to, to process the, the sheet metal. What kind of thickness... Uh, 
are we limited to in terms of cutting through sheet metal? Well, you can, uh, for example, on our 6-kilowatt fiber laser, um, we can cut, you know, up to an, uh, an inch and an eighth on uh, stainless steel, aluminum, uh, and uh, steel. So it can go pretty thick. Would that be greater than the capacity of punching? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's... Okay. Uh, that's more in the realm of, uh, you know, when you go to that thickness, probably more in the realm of, uh, you know, uh, plasma cutting or oxy fuel or something like that. But, you know, the laser is far more accurate uh, than those technologies. Okay, yeah, uh, you mentioned plasma cutting. We were just recently at the Fabtech show in Chicago, which we're going to be talking about uh, a little bit later, and they actually were courageous enough to allow me to handle a... Uh, plasma cutter that was, uh, was shot out a little flame that was hotter than the surface of the sun, uh, allowing me to cut through about a half inch of steel, uh, uh-huh. warning me that it, it, it sat on a grate, please don't cut their grate in half. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. they were kind I of was th- I was three booths away. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to give you a comparison on the, on the laser, if you take a six kilowatt Laser now six kilowatts just the the raw energy of the raw beam, um, but when you focus it and you put it through a focusing optic at the focal point, you're talking about 20 megawatts, so 20 million watts of energy at the focal point. So it's a quite an intense heat. Uh, it effectively vaporizes most of the material, depending on the type of syscast that you're using. But wow. um, it's uh, it's pretty uh, intense. Anything else as we uh, approach the bottom half of the hour and conclude this segment, Frank, that you want to share with our listening audience? Uh, And in particular, feel free to give them your website address so they can come and uh, see what uh, Bytronics makes and uh, maybe get in touch with you. Yeah, sure. So our uh, website is www.bystronicusa.com, and there you can see all of our different products. We Again, manufacturers, we do manufacture CO2 lasers, fiber lasers, um, the uh, press brakes for bending the sheet metal afterwards, uh, again, the automation, the software, so all those different technologies. And basically what we specialize in is that entire process chain from, you know, from the order until the finished part is basically what we specialize in and all the interconnectivity of the machines in between and uh, all the software that manages that process chain. Um, that's what we really specialize in, and uh, it's, uh, it's really a, a big benefit for our customers that they have a one-stop uh, turnkey solutions. Well, we've been speaking with Frank Artiago, who's head of product marketing for Bystronic Incorporated. Uh, he's been uh, sharing with us his vast knowledge over 25 years in the metal fabrication industry of laser warjet. Press break and automation systems, we're really focusing on fiber laser technology, which is some really cool stuff. Frank, we want to thank you for being on the show today. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Frank. We're- We're going to take a brief commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about Fabtech 2015, where Lou and I were uh, in the first uh, week of November, sorry, second week of November, 
And uh, we'll be giving you an update on everything that took place at Fabtech that we saw that uh, was happening around us. So stay tuned after this brief commercial break. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady. I am here with my co-host, Lou Wise. For those of you who are familiar with All Metals and Forge Group, it happens to be in, uh, a manufacturer of open-die forgings and seamless rolled rings. Uh, that is the sponsor of our show, and so we are always happy to have Lou on the show. Lou, how are you doing today? Doing great, doing great. Looking forward to having well, this discussion about uh, Fabtech. Uh, we had a great, we did have great some event. fun in Chicago. Yeah, we did have some fun in Chicago. Um, let me just give you a brief update, and then, Lou, I'm going to have you kind of explain what we were doing uh, with Fabtech. Uh, Fabtech has a show every year for the uh, metal-forming, fabricating, welding, finishing industries. It was in uh, Chicago at McCormick Place this year. There were 750,000 square feet of, uh, of uh, demonstration exhibit booth space. There was over 12 million pounds of equipment sitting on the floors. And when some of those machines fired up, uh, McCormick Place kind of rock and rolled a little bit. Uh, they had over 1,800 exhibitors, 50,000 people walking the floors uh, to take a look at the latest and greatest in the industry. So it was a great show. Uh, we were there for the entire show from Sunday through Thursday. Had a lot of interviews, talked to a lot of people in the booths, talked to a lot of people who we uh, interviewed. And why don't we jump into that and share with our listeners uh, what we did at Fabtech, Lou? Sure. Uh, when we went to uh, Fabtech uh, a year ago, and Fabtech is uh, basically sponsored by five 
partner organizations, uh, starting with uh, uh, SME, uh, FMA, um, the, the AWS, the American Welding Society, uh, Precision PMA, the Precision Manufacturing Association. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have uh, them have placed our booth and uh, radio studio right next to where all the organizations had their uh, primary booth set up. So we got to get chummy with them and talk to them a lot. And actually, we did interview uh, most of them, I believe, uh, about the show and about each of their uh, organizations, which we really learned a lot about. All that said, uh, 50,000 people and 1,800 exhibitors was uh, quite uh, an event to uh, walk the floor and talk to people and see all this new technology, which, uh, you know, it certainly isn't your grandfather's machine shop anymore. Um, No way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they they look they more it looks more like they should be wearing white lab coats uh, and clipboards with um, uh, iPads to run these uh, pieces of equipment, um, and uh, it was uh, it was quite exciting and uh, the uh, the crowd uh, the crowd was definitely uh, very enthralled in watching the technology play out. And uh, today we're going to be talking about some of the uh, things that we saw and tell you, tell you folks about it. And by the way, before I go any further, uh, we do have about uh, 18 or so uh, interviews on our website with videos um, of the various people that we uh, did interview. And we did go to several uh, booths where we uh, witnessed uh, and actually participated in the uh, Uh, doing some demonstrations with some of the equipment. Uh, Tim became a welder. Uh, I became a spray painter or a powder (laughs) painter. Uh, But I think one of the more more interesting ones were, um, and for all you Trekkie fans out there, you might remember the holodecks. And I hope I'm not breaking any copyright or trademark rules by even mentioning the name but there was a uh, one of the uh, website uh, one of the uh, manufacturers effectively set up a method to design out equipment that's 3D and the screen is about 12 foot by 18 feet and you wear 3D glasses and this machine takes you inside the machine that you're designing. It's absolutely incredible. And if you stand there eight, nine, ten minutes wearing it, your your feet fall out from under you because you're really uh, uh, air, almost airborne. Uh, and they also do have uh, a room, which we didn't see. That was at the University of uh, – uh, give me help here, Tim. Uh, one of the universities. Uh, University have, of Iowa. Right, they have a uh, the the effect of a, a holodex. There's uh, four walls, the ceiling, and a floor. And wherever you look, you're looking f- to that wall, that floor, or what have you. And uh, it, it it takes the design, the time it takes to design a piece of equipment or machinery uh, to the negligible levels. 
and you they work with their customers uh, to develop the equipment, and it's it's a good way for them to see if this machine's going to work, and uh, without ever having to build a prototype. So that was one of the uh, events that we went to, and uh, we did. Uh, our keynote speaker was uh, the famous uh, Rusty Wallace, a NASCAR driver. And uh, Rusty is a very personable uh, gentleman, and he was there to talk about uh, teamwork, uh, as it happens in NASCAR uh, pits. Uh, that if you don't have a team, you don't have a product. And uh, he made that quite clear in the manufacturing environment uh, as well, that if you don't have a team effect, whether you have uh, high technology or not high technology, if you have a team, it better work well. Uh, otherwise, again, you don't have a, uh, a product. Uh, Rusty, uh, I believe his uh, number of wins, I think, was... Uh, 55 wins. And, right. And I, I think I asked him how that converted to dollars and cents, and it was something like $50 million. Uh, But that only gave him the ability to buy eight car dealerships uh, <laughs> where he, the state that he lives in. Uh, but again, a very interesting, uh, interesting gentleman. Uh, again, uh, if you go to our website, uh, in the upper left-hand corner, I believe it is, it says uh, Fabtech Videos, and uh, we do have about 18 of them. And, Tim, you were going to say something? Yeah, we also had the opportunity to speak with uh, Sheila Lamoth, who is with uh, Trump. Trump makes some fabulous machines for the uh, metal fabrication and forming industry, and we had an opportunity to take a look at some of their latest uh, fiber optic lasers, uh, some of the cutting devices and material handling devices that feed the machine. So it's uh, always fascinating to see what's happening with technology. And they're one of the uh, anchor exhibitors for Fabtech. We also spoke with uh, Mark uh, Hooper. Mark is uh, vice president with Fabtech. He helped put that show together every year with the five associations that have uh, created it. And it gets larger every year. In fact, this was their largest show that they've had so far. And next year's show in 2016 is in Las Vegas. So uh, get in early. Uh, we certainly would like to see anyone out in Las Vegas who wants to see what's happening. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of new developments between now and then, the way that technology is going. Uh, it's very similar to Moore's Law, where in 1978 uh, they were working on chip design and the number of transistors on the chip uh, and Moore postulated that it would double every 18 to 24 months. In fact, it has. Uh, you really didn't expect it to really happen. It was uh, just out of postulation. In fact, it is now uh, happening that quickly. Well, it's the same thing that's happening in, in manufacturing, that the software and technology development is moving at a very rapid rate so that it's no longer dark, dirty, dangerous, and declining in terms of an industry it's becoming quite a dynamic industry. Certainly something for uh, people to look at if they're looking for a career path. It pays well, uh, clean environment. You're using your head a lot to uh, determine you know, what needs to be output by the machines. You're running machines with an iPad. Fabulous stuff to watch. So uh, speaking with Sheila and Mark was uh, really eye-opening, and uh, that was one of the uh, enjoyable interviews that we had, Lou. 
Yeah, and also uh, the amount of uh, accidents and safety in a manufacturing plant has been significantly improved uh, as a result of the technology. One, in some cases there are less people, uh, and two, uh, the, the equipment itself doesn't lend itself to be that close to the equipment uh, when technology is really doing all the quote-unquote uh, heavy lifting. Um, matter of fact, uh, it was Trump, I believe, that we saw where they were uh, taking sheets of steel, picking them up under a vacuum system, putting it onto a transporter plate, and uh, it would go into a sealed uh, cubicle, if you will, uh, and it would just start cutting up the sheets, and the sheets would fall into, the little pieces would fall into various buckets, and the product was done. And basically, there was one person uh, running the iPad. Now, that does not mean, folks, that you're going to all lose your jobs because the machine is going to take your jobs away. What is happening, though, there are different industries that are being created as a result of uh, the technology. Uh, uh, Robot manufacturing companies, uh, drone companies, uh, uh, software companies. So there's a lot of, I think it's 3 million jobs that are still uh, in the manufacturing sector. So they're not. Our jobs are 3 million jobs. Is that the right number? Yeah, I think that's right. That's what they're looking to fill. Yep. And uh, meanwhile, we're losing 10,000 people a day. Uh, who are retiring uh, from uh, manufacturing. So it's a, um, it, they got to run hard to catch up. You know, one of the fascinating things that we saw at Fabtech was a recreation in miniature form of the lion, it turns out it's the South Lion that sits in front of the Art Institute of Chicago. And they went out with some scanning technology and I, and I hearken back to Star Trek yet again, where they, they put out uh, uh, devices to uh, measure all of the aspects of that lion in 3D. And then they took that captured data to a 3D printing shop, and we had an opportunity to talk to uh, one of the companies that created it, and that was with... Uh, um, I believe it was with uh, Carl Decker. Carl Decker. Yeah, right. president of Metal Flow. And they actually printed that lion in miniature uh, in uh, plastic. And then there was another company that printed them in metal. They had a three inch, a four inch, and a five inch recreation. And it's astounding the level of accuracy, you know, underneath on top, uh, looking at it from the front, that they managed to capture with its scanning technology to feed into the 3D printing technology to come up with this miniaturized line. Just fascinating stuff. Well, just to to make it that much more dramatic, I don't know if you mentioned the size of the line that's outside the uh, the, uh, the building. (laughs) If I'm not mistaken, it's something like five feet wide, 12 or 15 feet long and about six feet high. So, you know, it's something that you see outside of major government buildings. I mean, it was huge. And uh, to make a three-inch exact replica 
was really quite incredible. Actually, I believe they gave them away to uh, contest winners. Is that correct? They did. They did. Yeah. They had about a hundred of them there. They gave we didn't. Away. We didn't get. We didn't get one. Uh, I wanted to no, steal one, but uh, you know that wouldn't have worked out well. <laughs> You know, we also had a chance to talk to Dr. Chris Keel. We haven't seen Chris in a while, and uh, he is one of the contributors on our show that we, we we always like to have on, and we like to get him on as often as we can, but he travels a very great amount of time. Uh, he happens to be the economist for the FMA. So when we get a chance, we uh, chat with him about what's coming up in terms of uh, 2016, 2017, what's the economy looking like, What's happening around the world? Uh, how are the credit managers seeing things for next month? Um, all those kinds of topics. Chris is fun to talk to because he, he brings economics uh, in a discussion where he introduces a fair amount of humor. Uh, economists generally aren't terribly humorous people, but uh, Chris certainly Caref- is. And he's careful, fun to listen. careful. I know I had had to tread tread lightly there. Uh, (laughs) There may be others out there, and we would love to hear from them if we have some uh, entertaining economists out there who can uh, chat with our listeners about what's happening in the manufacturing economy and kind of light the subject up because the subject can be dry, not the individuals. How's that for treading lightly? (laughs) Yeah, that that works. That works. Uh, Yeah, Chris is uh, always uh, quite a giggle, and one of the things that he does I really like is that He'll explain a particular issue and draw it into its conclusion and then end it by saying, unless this happens. And then he goes right. another path. Uh, so basically, anything can happen anytime, and nobody knows how or why. So Very true. That, Very true. That, that said, um, one of the most... Uh, interesting and uh, certainly emotional event uh, that I know you and I had there. We Mm -hmm. met with uh, a gentleman who started an organization called Workshops for Warriors. His name is... uh, Er Hernan Luis Prado. Thank you. Hernan is uh, brilliant. He started a him and he and his wife started an organization six years ago. Uh, he was a three-term uh, naval officer in Iraq and saw a lot of bad things. And when he came home, he and his wife, they cashed in everything they had, and they started workshop for veterans. And actually, they did start it in the garage of their home. And uh, he's now... Uh, training 60 uh, veterans uh, every three months. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I was in Washington, D.C. Uh, last week, and uh, he was there also, and he met at the White House. Uh, he had some senators come out and look at what he's doing, and uh, he had um, uh, a general come to see what he was doing, and they took it to the White House, and he was asked to uh, tell the White House what he's doing and go into greater detail of what he's what he's attempting to do by having uh, veterans train on how to use uh, CNC machines, learn all this new technology, um, and uh, give them give them a life, give them a career, 
And like I said, it was extremely um, uh, emotional. Uh, after our interview, we did go to his uh, uh, booth, and we saw some videos of the shop and uh, the things that he's doing. He's very energetic. He's uh, He's got very big plans, and I don't know how he's going to accomplish them. One of them is that his goal is to have 130 shops around the country. Um, I wish him luck. Um, one way or another, Tim and I, uh, through Manufacturing Talk Radio, are going to uh, be helping and assisting him to reach his goal. Um, but a very fascinating uh, gentleman. Uh, Tim, do you have any further thoughts on Hernan? Yeah, a couple of things to share uh, about Hernan and about workshops for warriors. One of the things I'd like our listeners to do is to pass upstream to the C-suite the need uh, that Workshops for Warriors has in terms of funding. They don't necessarily need equipment. They have some people who have provided them with equipment. Uh, They are uh, working on a a larger facility, so they're trying to raise $2 million for uh, building construction, and then they'll expand their classroom space, and they'll bring in more uh, individuals, but they're not really trying to add uh, to their waiting list, which is hundreds of veterans long. Here's their challenge. In order to get funding for the veteran, in other words, the veteran wants to go to their school, their school has to be approved for GI Bill funding. It takes eight years. Yeah, eight years to get approved for GI Bill funding. Meantime, they can go to any community college right now that's been established, and the vet can get training there, but they don't necessarily get the hands-on training they would get at workshops for warriors. So they're at about year six of wading through this eight-year process before they can get GI Bill funding so that the student can pay for their education through the GI Bill, which means the students are going through this program for free. And the only way that happens is if corporations are supporting workshops for warriors. So what I'd like to do is to kind of shout out to corporate America that workshopsforwarriors.org needs financial donations to keep the program going so that they can get to that place where they are approved for GI Bill, and then the veterans will be able to pay for uh, their education, and that those funds will flow through uh, workshops for warriors. And, and the reason that's important is that the instructors that they have at workshops for warriors are some of the top people in the industry, and they don't come for free. I mean, they, they are donating some of their time, but they're getting paid for their instruction time, and the challenge tends to be that somebody wants to come through and steal them because they really are the best of the best in terms of their knowledge base in the industry. So it would be great if somebody could grab them and put them into their welding shop or their machine shop, but that's not what Workshops for Warriors wants to have happen. So they want to pay their instructors well, keep them secure there at Workshops for Warriors. They just need funding to get to this eight-year mark. And if somebody wants to get more serious, then they want to talk to you about the help that they need in terms of building their building, expanding their facilities, et cetera. So there's lots of great things that can be done with the organization. Interestingly enough, they do not need uh, 
They don't need help in terms of uh, placing their students. Currently, they have a 100% placement rate. Every one of their students has got a place to go once they're trained. So they've got a lot of great things going for them, but they're in a funding gap right now, and they could use everybody's help, even individual help. You know, the $10 donation adds up if there's a 10,000 people making a $10 donation, and we encourage any of our listeners to go to workshopsforwarriors.org and make a donation. Lou? Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention one other aspect of this, that the veterans are a great source of good workers, disciplined, uh, dedicated, and so on. And that three million number that I mentioned earlier of shortages of employ- employers in the manufacturing sector can be filled by warriors, injured or un- not injured, women in manufacturing, another great source of uh, uh, labor. Uh, so you have to think of this in terms of not just donating uh, money, time, and effort to a charity. This is, uh, one, it's not a charity. It's a, it's a school, and we're helping to feed uh, the gap and get more people into manufacturing. So really take a look at it. Uh, it, it's really a very, very worthwhile cause. They are in uh, San Diego, California, um, which is always a nice place to go visiting a workshop for warriors and also the San Diego Yacht Club. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to make that one point that it does help to fill that work out. Yes, they're uh, right across from the naval base there, which is why they have 100% placement. The Navy Yard needs every welder they can lay their hands on. Do you know how much a welder makes? And I, actually, you know, the numbers are staggering, aren't they? Really? Staggering, yeah. And I, I was listening to uh, Bill Maher a couple weeks ago on uh, HBO, and he was demonstrating a point that welders earn $37,000 and philosophers earn that much more. And that was one of the comments from our supposed political candidates. And he mentioned that the welder earns $37,000. Well, that's totally untrue. It's up in the $75,000 to $80,000. And if you dare, you can go into a welding underwater with a diving suit and all of that stuff, and you can earn $100,000, $150,000. So, Bill, get your facts straight. Yeah, very true. And matter of fact, we uh, and we've had a conversation with some of these folks sitting next to them on planes. Uh, uh, there are people well into six figures. Uh, some of the underwater welders are making two and a half, three hundred thousand dollars. They're working six months of the year because they work a month on, a month off. They're out in the rig, so it's an incredible career. Absolutely, it is a short-lived though career. You can't do it for a long time. It's, it's not a birth to death in, uh, career. It's also a dangerous career in that things have a way of happening. For example, like uh, out on oil rigs, somebody always gets hurt. Uh, it's a question of whether they survive it or not. 
You know, one of the other people that we always enjoy speaking to on uh, on Manufacturing Talk Radio, who was at Fabtech this year, is Harry Moser. Harry is the founder of Reshoring Initiative, and he travels all over the country talking about what is happening with jobs coming back to America. So we had a chance to speak with Harry, and again, that interview is up on mfgtalkradio.com. Take a look at any of the interviews that are there, and uh, certainly you can find out uh, listening to what Harry had to share with us about how your company get, can get involved in reshoring for manufacturing. Uh, it's always fascinating to hear what's happening, and I think we're kind of at an equilibrium right now. There are still some jobs that go offshore, but they're uh, uh, different than what used to be going offshore. What has happened is that people have uh, tried to offshore lots of stuff, and what they discovered was America makes quality. And when you take a job that requires a quality part or a quality product and you offshore it, then you bring that part or product back, it doesn't have that made-in-America quality in it. And that's why it's coming back. There are some parts and pieces that can be produced offshore, and then they come back and go into a product that has that made-in-America quality brand to it. So Harry's a fun guy to talk to, and we'll have him on the show here in the near future. Lou? Uh, yeah, we also met with uh, Michael D. Alexander, VP and publisher of uh, FF Journal Magazine, which is a fabrication uh, publication, and uh, he is also a VP and publisher of another well-known magazine called Modern Metals. And uh, we interviewed with him, and uh, it was a very good interview. We had uh, a lot of interesting things that came from him uh, regarding the industry. Uh, and he was, uh, he was impressed with what we're doing with regards to manufacturing talk radio. Uh, you might even find us in an article or two in the not-too-distant future. So um, going uh, going forward, uh, we did also meet with uh, Bill Gaston, who is uh, the president of uh, PMA, Precision uh, uh, Manufacturing uh, Association. Uh, they're a knowledge-based and advocacy, technical training, networking, and business service organization. Uh, Bill is uh, his organization is one of the five that uh, co-sponsor uh, Fabtech. Uh, very interesting gentleman. We've met with him uh, several times before. Uh, Jim, you have anything to add to that? No, we had a chance to talk with Jim Colt of Hypertherm, and uh, we actually went over and uh, uh, that's where Lou did his uh, powder coating. Um, fascinating technology. We got a chance to. Uh, uh, see what it's like to use a powder coating gun where the energy at the tip of the gun is something like 100,000 volts. So uh, the device, the piece of metal that you're powder coating is actually grounded. So what comes spraying out of the nozzle is attracted to the metal. Then they put it in really, which is a little thermal oven for three minutes, and bingo, you've got a you've got a powder coated part. So that was actually that was great. Yeah, yeah, actually, we have a video of that one. Uh, we're, we're we're doing a demo. I'm glad I didn't get any of the green powder on my yellow jacket. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, another one that we did a, a demo was the modeling system. 
I, I misspoke. It, uh, hypertherm was a plasma laser water jet cutting. It was actually with uh, right. um, the, the folks at uh, another company that we went and visited, which is Nordson. It's uh, Nordson that has the powder coating uh, that we wandered over, and there is a video of Lou doing powder coating at Nordson. Um, we also spoke with the American Welding Society with uh, Ephraim Abrams, so we got an update on what the American Welding Society uh, is doing. And then we had a chance to talk with Karen Kerr. Karen Kerr is with uh, General Electric, and she talked about some of the neat, new, and exciting stuff that GE is doing. So if you'd like to kind of get a feel what GE is doing, she was one of the keynote speakers. That is a very interesting interview, and we encourage any of you to come and listen to that one as well. Um, I, I think that... Uh there are about five or six other uh, uh, interviews that we did that uh, I would suggest our listeners avail themselves uh, to. Uh, and uh, it appears as though that we're beginning to uh, run out of time here. Uh, so I'd like to just thank uh, Fabtech for the invitation uh, to Fabtech. And uh, um, Ed Udell was also one of the interviews that we had, who's the president of uh, FMA. And uh, a terrific event at a good time. Uh, they, had a, they had a great networking cocktail event at a Lucky Strike bowling alley, uh, which was uh, very interesting. Uh, looking forward to Vegas. I already have my room. And I don't know what you're doing, Tim, but uh, I'm already there. So <laughs> I'm not surprised. It will be a great show. We encourage anyone who is uh, in the industry or interested in the industry to uh, be at Fabtech uh, 2016 in Las Vegas. That wraps us up for Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again with uh, the show next week. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.